Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a primary election preview, the U of M introduces a sweet new apple, and the PGA in Minnesota. But first... It was one year ago, a natural gas explosion at the Minnehaha Upper Academy obliterated a building and killed two beloved staff members. I heard a loud explosion and I saw things falling from the ceiling. I'm just concerned because it's so real, because like the people that are in there are people that I know. Like Usually it's just something you see on the news, but now it's something that like relates to me. Like I know those people who they can't find, and I know those people that were in the building. And like imagining what they're going through and like the thought of like a loved one like not being able to be found is what really shakes me. I'm kind of in shock. I've been going here since I was in preschool so I've like grown up with this building and it's just kind of hard for me to see like this place that I spent so much of my time at just gone. My ears popped. We all walked out into the main kind of office area and looked at each other and I noticed there was debris and ceiling tiles on the ground and thought this was not a transformer. So I ran back and tried to find a fire alarm, but then uh, my boss said, you need to leave immediately. To mark the anniversary of that tragic event, students, staff, and community members recently gathered at the school site in South Minneapolis for a ceremony to honor the past, in particular to remember 47-year-old receptionist Ruth Berg and 82-year-old janitor John Carlson who were killed in the explosion, but also to look ahead. School president Donna Harris, who was among the nine injured in the explosion, said the anniversary brought about mixed emotions. You know, one moment I'm fighting back tears as I think about last year. Um, You can't help but think about the tragedy and the loss and the pain of that year. But we've also been able to come together as a community and and to reimagine our school. Academy junior Danielle Robinson spoke for many students at the ceremony. It would be very easy to continue to dwell on the explosion, but I want you to know that we are so much more than that devastating moment. We are strong, resilient, powerful, and optimistic about the future. We have so much to look forward to, and we are ready to share that message with the world. Once more, here's school president Donna Harris. We remember our beloved colleagues, Ruth and John, they will never be forgotten. We remember our physical and emotional scars. And we remember the legacy buildings where generations of students were educated. But we also remember the graciousness of God and his care for us during these difficult times. We remember the heroic deeds of first responders many who are here today. We remember the support and comfort we received from friends, neighbors, and community leaders. And we remember how the Minnehaha Academy community, our board of trustees, faculty, staff, parents, students, and alumni came together in unity to lock arms, hands, hearts, to hold one another up, and to declare that together we rise. The anniversary ceremony was capped by a symbolic pillar raising as construction on the new building gets underway. 
chairman of the Academy's Board of Trustees, David Anderson, put the rebuilding process in perspective. That pillar is a testament to this community's faith and commitment to bring not just a building, but our school entirely back to life. And it's tangible proof of the phrase our students placed on that sign on the fence. You cannot shake our foundation. This building will not only replace what was lost, but it'll equip us to meet the future. It will be beautiful. The materials that are used in its construction will hearken to our school's past, but also point toward the new. It's been designed to harmonize with its surroundings and responsibly protect the environment. It incorporates many features that both respect and invite our surrounding community. And it will be an asset that allows us to prosper in this competitive educational environment. But the goal of this building is not merely to be a beautiful and attractive place. At bottom, it's not intended for our neighbors or the board of trustees or for our administration or faculty. It's intended for our students, our children, and our children's children. There will be spaces for informal interaction and collaboration. There will be open vistas and places to walk. There will be spaces for quiet contemplation. There will be light. A final report on the explosion is still pending from the National Transportation Safety Board. In the meantime, as construction gets underway, students, staff, and the community are prepping for the new school year, hopeful for a brighter future and bound by a shared purpose of making good on the pledge, Together We Rise. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to The Dog Show. Up next, we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch-snuggling, ball-chasing, face-licking, tail-wagging, backyard-hanging, and, of course, companionship. And what breed would you say Satchmo is? I'd have to go with maybe a lavish terrier-hound, chihuahua-looking kind of mix. Tremendous dog. Mm, I'd also like to point out Satchmo's coloring, a white, gray, brown, black brindle, simply marvelous. You know, it's such a treat to watch a dog like this. Now, let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. How intuitive. And now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, oh, the happy dance, so common with this group. And finally, the loving face lick. It's great how he just gets in there and, well, licks. Fantastic. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Minnesota's primary election is next Tuesday, and all indications are that there could be record voter participation at a time when many people are on vacation Turnout helped along by a Minnesota law that allows anyone to vote absentee for any reason. Primary elections can often be ho-hum affairs for everyone except the party faithful, but MN's Bill Werner, that's not the case at all this time, is it? That is for sure, Scott. There are significant contested primaries in the U.S. Senate race for the seat previously held by Al Franken. There are big primary battles on both the Republican and the Democratic sides in the race for governor, and a big field of Democrats running for Minnesota Attorney General, which the primary election will whittle down to one candidate. 
Let's talk with Hamlin University political analyst David Schultz about each of those races, beginning with the Democratic primary in the U.S. Senate race, Tina Smith versus Richard Painter. This still looks like it's a race that Tina Smith will take um, for a couple of reasons. One, she is the endorsed candidate, and this may be one of those situations where being the endorsed candidate pays off in this, in this primary season. And second, I think because of the fact that there is some skepticism because Richard Painter was the attorney, ethics attorney for President Bush. I think there are some Democrats who are, are wary of, of voting for him, thinking he's maybe a turncoat or not a reliable Democrat. So I think it becomes difficult for him on those scores, plus the fact that Tina Smith has outspent and fundraised him by more than 20 to 1. And the name recognition issue that she has from that funding might be more than enough to sort of make the difference in terms of her prevailing come Tuesday. If I were making any kind of guesses at this point, um, I would think that she would, barring some surprises, handily win her primary. Let's move over to the governor's contest, because that one is really uh, uh, crazy for for being a primary. I I don't it's been a long time since I guess there's been a primary like this, right? We have uh, three Democrats and uh, and two Republicans, and, and, and that, that has been hotly contested. Let's talk about uh, the GOP side first. Uh, Hennepin County Commissioner Jeff Johnson, he's the endorsed candidate. He is being challenged by uh, former Governor Tim Pawlenty, who did not seek the party endorsement, just went directly to the primary. Um, there's been a lot. There's been a lot of speculation both ways on, on who might win that contest. Do you, you have any any feel for that at all? Again, if name recognition and money make a difference, Tim Pawlenty probably has the advantage that that he clearly has the name recognition of being a two-term governor and has significantly more resources than Jeff Johnson to spend in terms of advertising. However, many people who might be voting might be looking at Tim Pawlenty and saying, well, he was last elected you know, 12 years ago. Um, maybe he doesn't fit with the Republican Party now. In fact, one of Jeff Johnson's criticisms of him is that Tim Pawlenty had criticized Donald Trump. And so part of the question becomes, is Tim Pawlenty, is Tim Pawlenty still where the party is? Is he able to overcome some of his past comments critical of Trump? And will largely a, a campaign that has mostly been I would say media and and television driven um, be enough to overcome the party endorsement that Jeff Johnson has. That's the real question. Let's move over to the uh, Democrats. Aaron Murphy, the endorsed candidate. Uh, there are two others challenging her: uh, First District Congressman Tim Walls and Attorney General Lori Swanson, a somewhat late entrant into the race after a lot of scuffling after the party conventions. Um, of those three. Uh, do we have any idea who might prevail in the primary election? Well, the three candidates, well, first off, we, we, we have some indications from polling that it's a very neck and neck between Tim Waltz and Laurie Swanson, with Aaron Mif- Murphy a distant third. But the three candidates are running, I think, on very different strategies. Aaron Murphy with the selection of, of Aaron May Quaid as her running mate from, the, um, from Dakota suburbs, is running essentially a a metro campaign and she would prevail if in fact there's enough metro voters coming out on the support her and she may be helped if there's a high turnout in the fifth congressional district 
the Swanson ticket, which has Rick Nolan on it, has to bank on a very high turnout in the Iron Range versus Tim Waltz and on Peggy Flanagan have to count on winning, I would say, the majority of um, rural Minnesota um, holding their own in the Iron Range and holding their own um, in the Twin Cities. There's a lot of variables here, a lot of variables. variables. Almost impossible to predict, isn't it? Very hard to predict. It's all about turnout. Again, Swanson, if she gets a significant turnout, again, in the Iron Range, she's advantaged. Erin Murphy, a significant turnout in the metro area, especially the 5th District, um, she's at an advantage. The other, um, And, again, Tim Waltz, you know, turnouts among, let us say, more moderate Democrats across the state um, she, um, um, would be advantaged. I think the other issue becomes do Swanson and Waltz split their votes and the, among, among voters, and therefore that works to the advantage of the endorsed candidate? There's an incredible amount of variables making this race very, very difficult to predict. Let us move on to uh, the attorney general race. The Democratic side, there are a lot of candidates there uh, for Minnesota attorney general. Uh, The endorsed candidate is a gentleman named Matt Pelican. And shortly after the convention, Congressman Keith Ellison, 5th District Congressman, jumped into the race, which reshuffled a lot of stuff down on the deck a little further. Also, State Representative Deborah Hillstrom, former Ramsey County Attorney Tom Foley, and former State Commerce Commissioner Mike Rothman. That's a big field. And is there is there any cream that's rising to the to the top as you see it in that in that race? Is it Ellison in that one? He certainly has been most active in terms of in terms of media. I think. Yeah, Ellison has sort of the name recognition, and if dollars meet anything, he has raised so much money compared to his other challengers that he looks to be in a very good position for winning this primary. But we are also looking at a situation here where with five viable candidates, um, it will not take that many votes to actually win this primary. But right now, one would have to say that Keith Ellison is probably at an advantage, especially, again, if there's a huge turnout um, in the 5th Congressional District, of which he used to represent, um, they would more than likely come out to vote for him, and that would probably just about um, guarantee that he wins the primary. That's Hamlin University Professor David Schultz. So everybody get out and vote on Tuesday. Scott? Did you get that, listeners? Get out and vote on Tuesday. Thank you to Bill Werner for that report. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Researchers at the U of M have developed a new apple. It's called First Kiss, the child of Honeycrisp. MN's Tasha Radel has more. This fall, Minnesotans will be able to get their first taste of the newest apple developed by the apple breeding team at the University of Minnesota. Joining me now is Shelly Gustafson with the Minnesota Egg Experiment Station. Shelly, tell us a little bit about how the First Kiss apple came about. Yeah, so First Kiss is actually the Minnesota version, as we would call it, of a variety that was developed right in Chanhassen at the Horticultural Research Center called MN55 was its version when it was being tested. And 
first kiss will only be grown in Minnesota. So essentially, Minnesota orchards will have their own version of this apple. The national version of the apple, which is licensed, is going to be sold as Rave. So it's kind of a unique way of getting the public to be able to sort of distinguish between something that's grown in Minnesota versus a University of Minnesota apple, but coming from elsewhere. So both will be delicious, but first kiss will be grown in Minnesota. We were talking about this kind of around the water cooler at work. How did the name First Kiss come about? Yeah, so the idea behind it is that this is actually essentially an early season apple. So Honeycrisp typically is going to be ready right around mid-September. First Kiss is going to be ready about four weeks earlier than that. So the concept was that it's sort of that first kiss of autumn. You're just really starting to think about that idea of going back to school, enjoying those cooler nights. And so the idea was that we're going to kind of get that into the name, and it can kind of be that idea that this is the very, very early breath of autumn, which I think all Minnesotans love. Shelley, I have to ask, how long does it take, I guess, to develop a new variety of an apple? Um, First Kiss took about 21 years from sort of the initial cross, as we would call it, when they took Honeycrisp and they crossed it with an early season or an early ripening variety from the University of Arkansas called AA44. And from that, they made about 10,000 crosses, believe it or not. But First Kiss, or MN55 as it was at the time, became kind of the winner, so to speak. It became the one that everybody knew was going to be the great one. And we knew probably about seven years ago. But then what happens is we need to actually clone them and get them out to the orchard. So we do what we would refer to as a release, which means that they get cloned, they get sent to the orchards, but then it takes about five years after that for the apples to actually start bearing fruit. So that's what we're just seeing now is some of those apples that went out to the orchards three, four years ago are now starting to bear fruit. I can honestly say I'm embarrassed. I didn't realize that every time I picked up an apple, how much history there was behind it. Yeah, we like to say over here that, you know, good breeding takes time. We don't want to throw out apples that, you know, aren't going to be great for the industry as well as for consumers as well. So David Bedford, one of our apple breeders, actually did not like apples when he first started. And it's kind of one of those interesting stories that he really wanted to develop a fantastic tasting apple. And that's kind of how Honeycrisp came about, was he just was checking out the different apples out at the orchard when he first started. And he tasted this one, and it just had this unique texture. And he said, you know, there might be something here. And obviously, that has bred a lot of other apples, not only from the university, but now we're starting to see other breeding programs making children of Honeycrisp as well. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the history of apples. I understand that researchers at the University of Minnesota have been developing and evaluating apple varieties for years and years. So yeah, in total, this is the 27th release, so to speak, and 18 of those, we are very proud to say, are pretty readily available at this time. So there's this quote we always like to say, which is that at one point when people first moved to Minnesota, they were like, oh, don't move to Minnesota. You can't grow apples there. So really, early settlers needed apples. They were so important. They could put them in baked goods. They could can them to get through the winter. So those early that early work in terms of breeding was really just taking apples from the Northeast, bringing them to Minnesota, just seeing could anything possibly survive here. And 
there were some bad winters, and a lot of them didn't. But the very first varieties that could were sort of Matilda, and then eventually we got into Wealthy at the University of Minnesota. The first kind of big hit was actually Harrelson. So we're excited about that because we'll be coming up on the 100th anniversary of Harrelson in just a couple of years now. So we're hoping to do a little bit of promotion around that as well because that is sort of getting into that unique history. I think everyone knows Honeycrisp, but it's interesting to kind of talk about the history and how apples came to be here in the first place. Thanks again to my guest, Shelley Gustafson, with the Minnesota Agricultural Experiment Station with the University of Minnesota. I don't know about you, Scott, but I sure learned a lot about apples today. Back to you. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you A, put yourself in her shoes, How could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie, this is going to happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C, take charge. Got to get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to, man to man, mano a mano. Hey, Steve. Is now a good time? No? Okay, no problem. Bye. Or D, help her find a new boyfriend. I know a great place to meet boys. The internet. Nice, single, boys. Never mind. How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The 3M Championship wrapped up earlier this week at the TPC Twin Cities in Blaine with Kenny Perry winning the trophy for a third time. Next year, the event transitions from a Tour Champions event to a regular PGA Tour stop. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with Course General Manager Alan Call to discuss what that all means. Well, Alan, let's start another one in the books and really the final one for the Champions Tour. Kenny Perry, a three-time champion, finished the week off and um, another good week it looks like out here at TPC Twin Cities. You bet. It was an incredible one. I mean, obviously with uh, um, his 60 yesterday, which was, again, pretty spectacular, tying the course record, and uh, at the end of the day, raised a lot of money for charity and, again, kind of capped off uh, 18 years of uh, the Champions Tour here at the club, you bet. Kenny mentioned in his post around Sunday that uh, a little bittersweet for him because he won't be back as a Champions player per se. He is hoping to play in this as the in the Open or the PGA Tour next year. But um, uh, there are some interesting emotions, I suppose, for everyone involved with this because of that uh, long-lasting relationships with these guys that have been coming in for years. You got it. I mean, 18 years is a long time, and uh, we've had a lot of great, very fond memories. Um, I've been lucky to be here since day one. I was the head professional when we started and uh, became the GM in 2002. So it is bittersweet. I mean, obviously, um, you know, uh, we've had 18 really good years uh, with the community, with the sponsor, and that is just going to get expanded now with the PGA Tour. So we're using a slogan here on the club um, after the announcement that we are going to um, honor the past, we're going to celebrate the present, and we're going to embrace the future. So we're excited in all three of those phases and uh, look forward to the challenges ahead. 
Yeah, from a challenge standpoint, um, how much bigger now is this? I mean, what challenges present for you and your staff and I suppose the folks that are selling sponsorships and all of that? Uh, all the above, actually. I mean, obviously, you know, the field's going to be twice the size. It's the regular tour, which is the big leagues, mm -hmm. and not to take anything away from PJ Tour champions by any means, but um, it is the best players in the world, and uh, it's just a much larger scope. Like you said, more hospitality, um, more spectators, uh, more courtesy cars, <laughs> more security um, but I think the, the really big one here too is going to be more money for charity. In terms of scope can you give us a little idea what the typical over this last 18 years a typical week-long crowd would be and now kind of what you're looking for 2019 and beyond from that standpoint? Yeah it's a hard number to give because you know we've done um, for the last number of years a complimentary access where the tournament uh, has a sponsor for the day that is the uh, sponsor and you're coming in as a guest of them which is extremely creative in the marketing world um, but you know they also look at head counts in cars 2.1 people per car kind of thing and I would say numbers are probably between 16 and 100,000 for the week all, all things considered um, next year I would expect that to be at least double and if not more um, I've had the pleasure of working multiple PGA Tour events and uh, we expect a really big turnout next year state of Minnesota and the Twin Cities in particular is a huge golf area um, and, and and we've seen that with, with this event over the years. We saw it uh, with the Ryder Cup a few years ago. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, that's part of what this move was made for. It is. You know, and again, uh, it also puts 3M, who's our sponsor, on a more global scale. Um, it's network television. I believe I've heard it's going to be on CBS. So we're excited about all those things. But again, also the community. I mean, again, um, the city of Blaine, Anoka County um, have been so so supportive. Uh, this event just adds to that, plus brings us into a more regional scope with not only the state of Minnesota, but the whole upper Midwest. So we're, again, excited and looking forward to the um, uh, next year's event. People that have come to the event are familiar with the course. A lot of our listeners have probably played this course uh, multiple times, some of them. Uh, what kind of changes now will have to be made when the, uh, the big hitters come to town next year? You bet. So right now we have uh, multiple uh, items that we're going to be doing on the golf course from a competitive enhancement perspective. Uh, we've got uh, nine new tee boxes being added uh, for the championship tees, which are behind the current tees that we have now. Um, we have a, a whole new complex on 19 that's going to get shifted from where it stands today to the far right. We have some bunker modifications, some new bunkers. Um, we have some runoff areas around green. So in working with our architect with DSI, uh, CSI at the PGA Tour, Steve Wensloff and Tom Lehman and many of the other folks involved, um, we think it'll be a nice uh, competitive enhancement for um, the young bucks, as they say, coming out next year. Tom Lehman, I know, talked a little bit about, uh, you know, that he has some ideas. And I think, it, really, I mean, this thing is we speak when this interview airs you just be a few days away from starting some things along these lines and I know Tom Lehman the Minnesotan has uh, has helped with this and he'll be coming back to the state a few times to help right he will most definitely he's been very instrumental in the whole process I mean literally uh, working with our architect from the PGA Tour um, when he was over in uh, the UK playing in both the British and the senior British um, he was literally getting sending us emails at you know <laughs> odark 30 with some ideas and uh, it's been really cool to kind of hear his perspective on um, the enhancements to the golf course so we're, we're again really excited and uh, with him uh, maybe he'll be back maybe he can play in this in the big event next year too i think uh, there are uh, some things in play right now that that may happen so i can't don't quote me on that or make it official but i know there are things uh, behind the scenes that we're working on and and if not he will be a very big part of this event um, obviously because he was the player consultant here with mr palmer as the architect but also because of his roots to minnesota 
Last one. Um, if people, with this, as these renovations go, can people still come and golf here? They can. We're going to stay open through the process. The whole, uh, process right now is we're going to work on two to three holes at a time, uh, maybe have members play a little par three instead of a par four or five for the day, and then kind of move around. So we'll have 15 holes that are open with no work being done, yeah. and then three holes are being worked on. Uh, the one unknown and the one un- uncontrollable is Mother Nature. And, again, if everybody uh, cooperates and we get our work done in a timely manner, we think we'll be done here by the uh, middle of uh, September to the first part of October. Sounds like an exciting time. Thank you, Alan. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Mike Grimm with TPC Twin Cities General Manager, Alan Call. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.